Are you agreeing this morning that Labor will also pledge to take 100,000 children out of poverty by 2020? Can I you make that we, pledge I, this morning? Look, I believe we can be as ambitious as Bill English has finally so, said so, he'll be So after. you're putting that on the record this morning. Oh, look, you, yeah. you, you will pledge to lift 100,000 children out of poverty by 2020. God, my goal is to eradicate child poverty in New Zealand. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan. And today on The Detail, it's an intergenerational issue. But things are starting to track in the right direction. Income and hardship data in the latest child poverty monitor out today shows the country was roughly on track to meet the government's 2021 targets under the Child Poverty Reduction Act 2018. So what's the actual state of child poverty in New Zealand at the moment? Has Jacinda Ardern failed in her quest to eradicate it, as sniping from the political sidelines might suggest? The time for excuses is up. We have a government who is committing to welfare overhaul. They claim to be continuing to work to eliminate child poverty. It's now time for them to be delivering concretely. We are in a child poverty emergency. It's that bad. But are we also maybe in danger of catastrophizing, overstating how bad things are to keep building momentum? And even if we are, is there anything inherently wrong with that? I'm an advocate. That's my key role. That's my lever. But I'm not given to hyperbolic overstatement. Today I sit down with the Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft, to get an update on where we're at and what we need to do to get to where we want to be. There are 235,000 children living in households below the poverty line. That's about one in five children in New Zealand. Can you tell me a bit about the context that figures in? What, for example... Um, do we mean when we say households below the poverty line? Yeah, there are two ways that we measure child poverty. The one you're talking about is income-related. We take the median or middle income, and the poverty line is families with incomes 50% below the median income. It's not that hard to grasp, but yes, it's a technical measurement, and it measures income coming into the family, whether it's by way of benefit or wage or the like. The other metric that we use is material hardship. Tell me a bit about that measurement. Yeah, I think that in effect is the more demonstrably clear in the sense it's based on a household economic survey, a door knock, where families are asked about the presence of 17 different things that children need to thrive, two pairs of shoes, a raincoat, a warm, dry home, access to fresh vegetables, fruit, meat, poultry, regularly during the week, a family that can pay a $500 emergency bill on the spot if it's required, all measures of the basics that children require. If a family's without six of those continuously in a chronic way, they're said to be in material hardship. Without nine, in very severe material hardship. There's 150,000 children that fit that definition. Now, that is unarguably a severe and, I think, utterly unacceptable situation. When you imagine Eden Park filled up with spectators, that's twice over, and that's a group we can identify, and they've been clearly shown to exist by that door knock survey. 
And what's the story with extreme material hardship? What are our, what are our numbers like there? Uh, down under the 90,000. In fact, the government's still formulating a measure for persistent severe hardship. That's got to be finalised by, I think it's 2022. Mm. Thus far, we're using the material hardship and we're using the income-related measures. As a whole, they paint the picture. And I guess the headline is there hasn't been substantial reduction across the board in all those measurements. There's been no change in material hardship. There's been about a 2% drop in the key income-related measurement. But overall, while we might be tracking on a downward level in the income-related measurements, we're not in material hardship nearly as clearly, and there's much work still to be done. Were we expecting to be tracking down in material hardship? Yeah, there were goals to halve material hardship by 2028. So it's about 13, nearly 14% of children qualified. That was going to come down to, I think, 6 or 7%. Mm-hmm. The dotted line wasn't clearly tracking in that direction, but it was for income-related poverty until COVID hit. So we were cautiously optimistic that we were on track for the government's goal of halving child poverty by 2028. In all this debate, you know, the big issue is the stats are between 18 to 30 months old. So we're talking about stats a year and a half ago. And you'd think in a modern Western world country we could get stats within six months. And I don't know why we wait so long for them. UNICEF's annual report card gives New Zealand a failing grade when it comes to the welfare of children. It says that New Zealand children score poorly compared to other developed countries when it comes to suicide rates, physical health and the basic ability to read and write. Is child poverty a tricky thing to measure internationally or to compare ourselves to different countries? Because you would think that there would be large differences in methodology and the collecting of statistical data and even barometers of what constitutes poverty and what doesn't between different countries? Yeah, that's a fair question. The income measurement is a relative rate and it's harder to compare because you're taking the median or middle income in a country. That'll be set at different levels, but you're still taking half the families who live 50% or below. Mm. So that's significant. The material hardship... There is some commonality. We can easily, or relatively easily, compare ourselves with the European countries, and we've done that. One of the things that just stands out in that comparison is that we do really well for the over-65s. It's important to make that point. We decided to do that in the early 1990s, and our, I guess, deprivation rates for the over-65s is actually very low. It's world-leading. Our deprivation rates material hardship for under-18s is quite high, but it's not as high at last look as a country like Germany, for instance. But what stands out in New Zealand is the gap between the very low rates for over-65s and the higher rates for under-18s. That gap is the largest between New Zealand and any Western European country. 
there's something structurally wrong in our economy that we do so well for the over-65s, and that's great, and we should continue doing that. But if we had the will and the determination, we could equally do it for the under-18s, and we haven't. And the fact that we don't leads me to conclude that we've just about made the deliberate choice to tolerate child poverty as part of our economic structures. No one wants to say that, but for 30 years that huge disparity in our economy has just stared us in the face. And I think it's something of a national shame that the economy is so mangled and distorted and we do so well for one part of the, of the age cohort, which is great, but we don't for the other. But we could if we wanted to. Are things worse in New Zealand than they have ever been for children? Because sometimes it seems like that. What do you think? It's a really common question I'm asked, how well do New Zealand children do? And let's start with that. Sure. There are three key things that, or or stats we can say. 70% of New Zealand children live in relatively well-off, well-looked-after advantaged environment, 70%. They thrive and they flourish. Some do world-leadingly well. We've we've got to hold on to that. However, there's 20% who really struggle and 10% who are in chronic, consistent hardship and disadvantage that is increasingly intergenerational. Now, that's a very rounded, generalised assessment, 70-20-10. It's a little higher in some areas, a little lower in other areas, like material hardship is 13%. But that 70-20-10 is remarkably consistent wherever you measure it. Health, education, child poverty. And when we score badly relative to the rest of the world, it's because of the extent of that 20 and the 10% and the depth of the disadvantage. I mean, that group stands out. And we are worse in that sense than many other Western world countries. Has it ever been this bad? I think we dropped the ball in 1991 when budgets were slashed. The October announcement locks in the second stage of the revolution. The biggest and hardest blow was a 10% cut in benefits. From April the 1st, the single unemployment benefit will be cut $14. The sickness benefit will be cut $27. Couples with children and solo parents face a benefit loss of between $25 and $27 a week. Also from April, the universal payment for family benefit will be abolished. They were never effectively made up relative to the economy that doubled in its growth, wages that nearly tripled. So whereas in 1991, maybe 12% of beneficiaries met the income-related test, now it's much higher, between 70 to 80%. The point being that the benefit no longer allows beneficiaries to live in the same way that they did in 1991 because wages have gone up and the economy's gone up, prices have gone up. We never linked benefits to wages, so they got out of kilter. And all the benefits of the economy never trickled down, as the thought would be that it would, never trickled down to the families that really struggled, and it got worse, and it's getting worse. And I think, Emil, long answer to your short question, you could say for that group of 10%, 13% in material hardship, it hasn't been worse. And that's what we hear from people who we speak to. And one thing is clear, COVID 
has amplified and exacerbated that hardship. The 70% probably escaped the real effects and the burden wasn't equally shared, but the burden fell disproportionately on that 10 and that 20%, and we know they were doing it tough, really tough. You mentioned earlier that we are on track... COVID may throw a spanner in the works here, Mm. but we are on track to meet our targets when it comes to certainly incomes. How do we read that? Does that mean, because I mean, I guess you never want to pat yourselves on the back when it comes to child poverty, when child poverty still exists, right? But are we tracking in the right direction? We are, and we need to acknowledge that what this government's put in place, sometimes on a cross-party basis, we would never have dreamed of four years ago. When I got the role in 2016 of Children's Commission, I was told very clearly you can't measure child poverty. You can measure exotic trees being planted and rodent extermination, but you can't measure child poverty. Four years later, it turns out we can measure child poverty. There's child poverty reduction legislation in place. There are targets in place. We've seen $25 increase to benefits, doubling winter energy payments, best start payments for newborns. Now, all of those are significant. They've laid a terrific foundation we would scarcely have dreamed of, but we dare not, as you put it, pat ourselves on the back. This is just a start. You talk about how this is in danger of becoming a long-term issue, an intergenerational issue. But of course it's long-term. Of course it's intergenerational. It's, you know, we're talking about child poverty. So is there sort of a tension between wanting things to happen quickly when things, it's almost like they simply cannot happen quickly by definition? We would all want the revolution tomorrow. I wish we could. Some things, however, could be done very quickly. Don't think that child poverty sort of slowly snuck up on us and we can somehow absolve ourselves of some responsibility because we didn't realise what was going on. It hit us in the face in 1991 with the mother of all budgets. Bang. One off. You can see the graph. It goes up like like a cliff. If we were to take that same bold action with incomes, I think we would see some pretty rapid change. But generally the consequences of child poverty reach out into all areas of a child's life. The tentacles of child poverty constrict and affect health, education, affects criminal justice, affects general well-being. I'm sure there's a re- sort of a, a some relation to our high youth suicide rate. So you're right, overall, they may take a little longer to come down, but as night follows day, the clear theory, the expectation is when we reduce child poverty, we reduce all those other areas too. That's why it's such an important debate. This isn't a discussion about stats in a vacuum. This is affecting children and families across all areas of their lives. If we could get child poverty right, we would see so many other areas come right too with reduced government spending. Your rhetoric around this is, 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 without exception, very, very strong. This is chronic and it's long-term, almost now intergenerational poverty, are in a child poverty emergency. It's that bad. Spend some surplus on children. We've said we've been keeping it for a rainy day. Well, from the children's point of view, it is pouring outside. How much of that rhetoric is 100% true and how much is effective hyperbole? 
Yeah, I've reflected on it, and I didn't make those observations lightly. I've been in the role four years now. Every year, I've been able to say no more than it hasn't got significantly worse, and we're sort of holding the line. This year, I can say some foundations have been put in place now as never before that we would never have dreamed of, but yet it's still a very hard issue to wrestle down and drive down. When I speak, as I do, to children at free breakfasts, a girl I spoke to who said there are 13 in the house of two bedrooms, it's hard to do homeworks. When I spent a while ago, some years ago now, speaking to a mum whose dad had built a hut at the back of their house section to house her and her two under five boys, and it wasn't insulated and even in Auckland, the rain and the water dripped on the inside and the mould grew and she was taking her eldest son to the doctor every week. When you hear those stats, how else would we characterise it given the last four years other than as an emergency? I'm an advocate. That's my key role. That's my lever. But I'm not given to hyperbolic overstatement. I think it's a fair assessment. We would make the same observation about climate change and great that we're having that debate because that's the future of our children and we should be declaring it an emergency. Equally, why would we not... We don't need to declare anything an emergency. It is a child poverty emergency. The facts just point, in my view, unarguably in that direction. What makes us reluctant to accept it and what makes maybe the allegation that it's an overstatement given people calls for concern, is that it's gone on for so long that we sort of accept it. If this had just hit us in the face this year, we'd all be saying, how can a decent New Zealander ever tolerate this? You advocate for an increase in benefits, um, increased supply of state and social housing, new ways to manage rental costs. These are eminently sensible suggestions. So... You know, what is actually holding these back? Why hasn't it happened? You get into some pretty deep and dark areas there where where there's concern about is it right to be giving more to beneficiaries? We talk about the deserving and undeserving poor. I think there's still a lot of that at play in New Zealand. Is it going to be well used? I know people will ask. Interestingly, the, the London School of Economics did a study in about the year 2000 when the Blair government increased benefits. Mm. That study showed that almost all the benefits ended up in supermarkets and shops. That is, mothers spent it on their children. That's what happens when mothers get more cash, dads get more cash for their families. Invariably, it's spent on the family. So... The question seems to me not why would we increase benefits, why wouldn't we? Now, housing, why haven't we stepped in and really been decisive there? I think as a country we've been a bit like possums in the headlights. You have said before that you think that there is political will to really take big steps in this area. One of those two things is untrue. Either there isn't the political will or there isn't the money yeah, there's the money. We're told that the government runs theoretical surpluses. 
we know that borrowing money is incredibly cheap. It's almost free. I can't see that the money side is really the issue, just as it wasn't when we decided to index link superannuation and make big commitments there. I mean, that's a group that could vote. So I don't think money's the issue. In the end, I think it is a test of political will. I think that's where the issue is. We hear the talk, and it's been terrific what this government's done, but if it's going to be like a Michael Joseph Savage government, if it's going to build the legacy, then it is going to take some bold, courageous, gutsy decisions. Properly explained, I think most New Zealanders would immediately say it's the right thing to do. People are up for it. The real question is, will this government actually translate the words, the foundation so far, into further action? It is a matter of will. Do you think that we need to just sort of de-escalate some of the rhetoric around this, you know, like a grand coalition kind of thing? Mm. Yes. And in fact... Simon Bridges and Jacinda Ardern did that because the child poverty reduction legislation was bipartisan, tweaked by the National Party. It got near unanimity in Parliament. Only ACT voted against it. That was the start of a bipartisan approach. We desperately need to take it off the political cheap shot agenda and unite around children because children don't have that vote or that influence. We have to be the adults in the room and get together with concerted effort. And I think if people realised, for instance, abuse and neglect rises significantly with deprivation. That's not to say all poor people abuse or neglect their children. Most don't, of course. But the risks as you get poorer of that happening increase significantly. Hospitalisation for abuse and neglect is directly related to poverty. There's an enormous social gradient. If we realise that as a country, if we realise that we would be doing good for children in health, I mean rheumatic fever, most Western world countries don't even have it. Mm. I heard a New Zealand paediatrician saying when she was in Canada, one case of rheumatic fever brought all the paediatricians from the area around to look at it. It was such an oddity. Yet we have about 70 a year in New Zealand. Mm. It's entirely preventable, need not happen, but we tolerate it. I did an episode of the podcast many months ago about homelessness. During Level 4 lockdown, New Zealand more or less eliminated homelessness, which sounds like a ridiculous sentence, you know, on the page. It looks ridiculous, you know, New Zealand eliminated homelessness. It's like New Zealand brought about world peace. But it is a thing that happened. You know, we just came up, or we're coming up with a vaccine after like a year. The power of humans to come together and sort out problems when they are acute is actually quite remarkable. Love what you say. And if children had a vote and had a voice and had an influence, it would be exactly the same. We have demonstrated beyond a shadow of doubt that New Zealand can take bold, decisive action when necessary, just as you pointed out. I think it was great what we did with COVID. We're all, in the best sense of the word, proud of that. I mean, we have been dubbed international leaders. The same collective effort could do exactly the same for child poverty. 
That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Judge Andrew Beecroft. Kaki te ano.